Hey, this is Jeff Lorber here, and you're listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream, and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is pianist, composer Michael Wolfe. He was the musical director of Arsenio Hall's television talk show. He's released 21 albums, and he's recorded with a host of jazz luminaries, including Cannonball Adderley and Sonny Rollins. But there's another side to his story as well. Michael has Tourette syndrome, and he's also dealt with a rare form of cancer. He's written a new memoir called On That Note, which covers both parts of his life, and we're gonna talk about all of this. And in the middle, as I do with all my musician guests, we are gonna do a song fest. We've picked out a few songs of Michael's. We're gonna play a bit of them, and you're gonna listen to him talk to you about them. You're gonna get the backstories, and nobody else does this in podcasts. And as you also know by now, I feature a song of mine underneath the introduction and at the end of every episode and i try to make the song relevant somehow to my guest or the subject matter and in this instance i have chosen a song that i wrote a long time ago called cannonball from the album prisoners of love by my band the robert miller group why did i choose this well michael recorded with cannonball adderley and I wrote the song Cannonball to honor Joe Zawinul of Weather Report, who got his start playing with, you guessed it, Cannonball Adderley. So I thought it worked. So Michael Wolf, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Yeah, thanks for having me here, man. Looking forward to it. I'll tell you, it's tough to make a living as a jazz musician, isn't it? It's tough. It is very tough. I've had to do a lot of... Uh, extracurricular things just besides just playing straight ahead jazz but i've been really fortunate i mean i went on the road at 20 with latin jazz virus cal jader and it just went from one gig to the next one gig to the next for about 10 11 years and at a certain point i decided to get off the road and stay in new york and i did that's when i experimented with stand-up comedy and acting and all kind of different things you know but ultimately realized you know, music was what was was up for me. So I stuck with that. Did you always want to be a musician? Were you trained and, you know, were your parents musical people? Yeah, my dad was an amateur musician. He was a doctor, but he had perfect pitch. And so he always was playing music around the house. And he's the one that sat me down. And when I was a little kid, I'd sit on his lap. He had this rocking chair and he's into golf. So he'd be holding his nine iron or something. And we listened to Count Basie's band, Ray Charles, Oscar Peterson, all the people that he liked. And he would discuss it with me and tell me about the sections of the songs and the A section, the B section, it's segueing here. He really knew a lot about music, just, uh, you know, just kind of an amateur, but it was great for me to have that background. Very impressive. My father was a trumpet player, also kind of an amateur trumpet player. He played weddings and bar mitzvahs and things like that. But he said to me right from the get-go that you're going to be a musician whether you like it or not. 
So he started me on piano, and then ultimately I switched to trumpet and then taught myself guitar and bass. It's always nice to have that at-home situation where they're pushing you a little bit. So important to have that support. You know, my dad, you know, had grown up in the Depression, and he was very poor. He grew up in Mississippi, you know, picking cotton in the summer so he'd have enough money to pay for his school clothes and stuff. And he got the Army in World War II to, to draft him and send him through college and medical school. He just worked really hard. So he told me, he said, look, I did all the hard stuff. You do something fun. Be a jazz musician or a golf pro. He was very supportive, you know. Well, that was a different day, man. I was the late 60s, 70s. You know, it was all, everything was cheap. I went to UCLA. It was like $225 a quarter. I mean, you know, just things were different, you know. Isn't that amazing? You know, I went to Boston University myself. And the last time I checked, the tuition and room and board there was something like $80,000 a year. My father <laughs> would have had a heart attack over that. Yeah, definitely. All right. So how did you work your way into television? How did you get this gig with Arsenio Hall? Tell me about that. Well, the way I met Arsenio was I was musical director for five years with Nancy Wilson, the great jazz singer. And uh, because of that gig, I learned to arrange. I, I conducted a lot of symphonies. It was you know, I didn't have a, an, a jazz education because it didn't exist when I was coming up in the 60s and 70s. It was really, you had to kind of figure it out on your own. Or, you know, I studied classical music in college. So when I got with Nancy Wilson, I had to learn to arrange for a big band and orchestra and strings and to conduct and do all these different things. And we would play at various clubs, you know, for in those days, you play for two weeks, right? So we were playing in Chicago. And they're actually out at the Hyatt in Chicago, they had a little jazz room, like a dinner supper club, you know, and uh, this seated about 300 people. So we were there for a couple of weeks and the normal comedian couldn't make it. And they just went to the comedy club about a mile away and got this kid, Arsenio Hall, to come. And he opened for us and Nancy loved him and called her manager, John Lee. He came out, started managing Arsenio. So we were on the road together a lot. We were roommates, we became really close. And he always said to me, I'm gonna have a talk show one day and you're gonna do the music, man. And I was like, cool, you know, I didn't know what was gonna happen. Whatever you, whatever you say, man, I believe in you. You know, he was funny. I wrote a lot of comedy, he would do my lines on stage and we had a lot of fun together. So, you know, I, and we kept in touch, you know, when he was doing Coming to America, he was in that with Eddie Murphy. He took over for Joan Rivers, The Late Show, all these different things. and. Whenever I'd get to L.A., because I was living in New York City, but I'd go out to L.A., we'd play basketball, we'd hang out, whatever, have dinner. And uh, when he got this show, he called me and said, look, I think I want to do an all-female band. And I said, great, I'll help you find it. You know, I didn't wasn't thinking of me doing it. And then he called me a couple of weeks later and said, I, I want you to do it, man. Come on out here. I said, I don't want to leave New York, man. He said, well, what are you going to do? New York's only good if you're going to be a, what do you say, a, a male model or a stage actor. I go, well, I'm not doing any of that. So I went out, met his producer one day, got the job. And then I went out to LA and thought it might last, you know, 13 weeks. So I, I didn't even buy a car. I just sublet an apartment, took taxis. And then it started happening. I went, okay, I got to get into this LA lifestyle, you know. How long was he on the air? We were on five and a half years. That's amazing. And what was the time frame for that? Uh, 89 through the spring of 94. It was great. It was a very hip talk show, you know, at that time. And the band was good, right? Who'd you have in the band with you? And I had Peter Maunu on guitar, John B. Williams on bass. Started with Terry Lynn Carrington on drums. 
later on Chuck Morris took over and uh, Star Parodi played, you know, extra keyboard. She was great. It's a fantastic band. People sat in all the time. I remember first week or two, Bradford Marcellus was just a sax player then, not just a sax player, but he was a saxophonist and he sat in and he, I remember at the end of the show, he goes, Mike, that's a hard gig. Cause I had an earpiece and they tell me, you know, I had to time everything and count everything off and cut it off and talk to Arsenio. Of course, later on, he got the gig with Jay Leno. That was a fantastic experience for me to do the Arsenio Hall show because I got to play with so many great musicians. You know, my idol, Miles Davis was on the show and we became friends and I got to play with Wayne Shorter and, you know, Chick Corea, Herbie was always on, Herbie Hancock, you know, yeah. so many people. And that I became really good friends with them. I mean, I had a good jazz career, but this was like meeting everybody. So I was playing with Al Green, became close with Warren Zevon, the singer songwriter, Whitney Houston, whoever was around uh, would come on the show and, and often play with our band. So it was a great experience. Yeah, it must have been amazing. And the main thing was I met my wife, who I'm still married to, 30 years later, Polly Draper, who was the star of a show called 30-something. Yep, love that show. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, it changed my whole life, man. It changed my life. Let's just go back for a second. You mentioned Miles was on the show. This had to be kind of towards the end for him. What was he like at that moment? He was great. I mean, he came on the show and everybody... You know, it was kind of a hip-hop show. Everybody was like, what's up? How you doing? And then when he came on, it was very quiet on the set. He was like a magician or something. You know, he had some kind of magic. So it was beautiful. I mean, I, you know, I grew up, I had two idols, and they were Miles and Cannonball. And I had seen Miles play a lot, but I'd never met him. He was just like a, a god to me, kind of, you know. Yeah, he was kind of a mythic guy in the whole Canada. But I met him. He was so sweet, man. Uh, like we took a picture together and he invited me out to his gig the next night. And I hung out with him in his dressing room. And uh, he was a groove, man. He was really great. Really cool. I mean, I think he was sick at that time, you know, but I mean, you know, I think to musicians, he was really cool, you know, whatever the other world, however he was in the world or in the past. But by this time in his life, he was very sweet. For anybody that doesn't know, we're talking about Miles Davis, who was an absolute iconic figure in music, in all kinds of music. And one of the great things about Miles is that, you know, he started off playing traditional jazz, bebop, etc., went into electric music, always was looking for the next new thing. One of the great aspects of his career was that he never looked back, it seemed. He always looked forward. And I've saw him several times, of course, myself, but just a wonderful, wonderful musician. Yeah, he was beyond a musician. I think I was at a, a jazz educators convention one time and it was a Grammy panel. It was Horace Silver and a few other musicians. And it was after Miles had died and they were talking about him. And some young people didn't really know about Miles. And they're talking about all these great musicians. Somebody said, what about Miles and Horace? I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Miles was on another level from everybody. Oh, we're all great musicians, but Miles never put that horn to his mouth when he didn't make music. You know, he was just special, and he really was special. This is a special guy, you know, just yeah, special. He was. He got the greatest musicians with him. You know, he his playing was sort of how his playing always was. He developed it, but he changed all the stuff around it. It was like he repainted the house or something. Yep, exactly right. He repainted the house. I like that. All right. So you were with Arsenio Hall for like five years. What happened with him afterwards? I haven't heard anything about him. What's he doing these days? 
he's done a lot. You know, he did a couple of shows. He produced them. He, he was at a sitcom. He, uh, uh, he actually uh, did some movies. You know, he, he owned the show, so he really probably didn't need to work, you know. He split it with Paramount, so he was financially set. But then he, um, he actually had another talk show for a year, you know, maybe five or six years ago. I don't know when it was. And then, you know, he's, uh, he's writing a book right now. I know that. And he's writing a pilot for a TV show. We're still in touch. All right, good. In fact, I, I wrote my book and he gave me a great blurb for my book. So I have a chapter on the whole show and my whole experience there. And he gave me a really nice blurb. That's terrific. Let's go to some of your music because we got a couple of songs teed up here. And, you know, it was interesting because you chose three songs to give to me. And it's definitely all within the acoustic jazz kind of framework. The first one we're playing right now is called Clark Bar which is a real straight-ahead kind of thing. Tell me the backstory on that one. Well, I had a band for a while, and I'm still really close with uh, jazz and funk drummer Mike Clark, who played with Headhunters, Herbie Hancock's Headhunters. And so we had this band, Wolf and Clark Expedition. And, uh, you know, I compose all the time, and I have music just laid out. You know, I compose on a big piece of paper, you know, big pad of paper, and I'm always writing and connecting it. Anyway, I just came up with this little vamp and this hit, and I thought, you know, Clark Bar was a candy bar when we were young, but I wrote it for Mike Clark, you know. So it just kind of happened. Christian McBride is the bass player on this, and uh, uh, Mike is the drummer. And it just, uh, it was a real fun thing to play. I would guess so I would say influenced by McCoy Tyner, sort of, you know. I hear that McCoy Tyner kind of influence in it, so that's cool. All right, let's go to the second one called Bounce. This one, you know, it reminded me a lot of So What?, by Miles, you know, from the Kind of Blue album, because it's got that bass melody thing going in the beginning, and then you go into kind of a jazz rock type of vibe on it. So tell me a little bit about that one. Well, you know, that was, uh, in a way, uh, of course, uh, so what is iconic? So it's the same kind of thing like that. But the feeling of it is more from Cal Jader and really like Ramsey Lewis or something. You know, it's kind of mixing the Latin and a little funky and, you know, it's, uh, it's just music that I like to play and that was really important to me coming up. So there's actually a chapter in my book. When I perform now, I read some stuff from the book and there's a chapter, I read part of it about Cal Jader and then I talk about this song that I wrote because I originally called it San Mateo 
which is where Cal Jader lived, but then I made it bounce. I thought that was a better title. But um, yeah, so that was the concept, you know, just that, you know, how often do you hear a bass play a melody? I missed it, you know? So I thought, let me make up a melody for a bass. Oh, it worked out great. I love it. Well, as a bass player myself, I was attuned to that when I heard it. So I congratulate you. <laughs> and yeah, I like the fact you mentioned Ramsey Lewis. He was always one of my favorites, you know, when he recorded the in crowd, right. which I covered in my band years later. And if you go back and you listen to the original that he did of that song, you know, they're playing it in the nightclub. And what was so cool was that you hear the tinkling of the glasses and you can yeah. almost hear the waiters walking through the aisle as the band is playing that song. You don't hear stuff like that anymore. Uh, no, Ramsey Lewis was when I was starting out and I was, you know, a teenager, you know, Ramsey Lewis is kind of a gateway pianist to get into more complicated jazz because his music that he was recording then was, you know, pop songs. Yeah. Like Wade in the Water was kind of like a gospel song and and uh, the in crowd and stuff like that. And so uh, I really got into that feeling that they did, which was kind of early, early jazz rock, I guess you'd say, you know, kind of a fusion thing. So uh, then, you know, with Cal Jader, when I was 20, I got more into Latin music. So I mixed a little bit in there. I always like to mix stuff. You know, I don't like it necessarily to be one straight thing. Good for you. All right, the last one we're going to listen to now is Barcimento, which is a live thing by you. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, that's never been put out. I'm hoping that's going to come out on a record. I recorded it live in Paris. I have a jazz trio in Paris with a, a great drummer named Jeff Boudreau, who we actually know each other from Louisiana. He's from Louisiana, but he's lived in Europe about 30 years and he lives in Paris and another a Parisian a bass player named Michel Zanino. And uh, we played a lot together. Whenever I go to Europe, I basically use them and I tour with them. And I thought it would be fun to record this band, you know. So we played, there's this place called the, the Sunside, you know. And we just booked a couple nights. Uh, they had a setup with Pro Tools and everything. Uh, we recorded this album. Uh, and Barsamanto is a, a song I wrote for a drummer friend of mine named Michael Barsamanto, who was uh, actually in my house one day. And he started playing a beat. And I just wrote this whole song. I go, I got to write this down quick. You know, it just came out. So that's how that happened. Pretty cool. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller, your host. You know, I've been fortunate to have so many amazing guests on this podcast. Famous musicians, actors, directors, photographers, and other creatives. I've been asked many times how I get such great guests. The answer is in several ways. Some contact me directly, some come through their manager or public relations firm, and many come from referrals by my other guests. 
Well, now I want to open up the process to you, my listeners. I'm sure that some of you know a famous or interesting or accomplished person, someone who has followed their dream to success and who would make a great guest on this podcast. If you know someone like this, I'm inviting you to contact me or have them contact me. Shoot me an email at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. That's robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And tell me who you've got. And if you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to the podcast so you get each episode when it airs. And also, you must visit our website at followyourdreampodcast.com where you can listen to all of our episodes and much more. As always, I want to thank you for listening and we'll see you in the next episode. All right. I want to get to the second part of what we're going to be talking about, which is kind of a different aspect. And that's your whole medical side of things, which is a very interesting story to add into this. You've got Tourette syndrome. So tell everybody who doesn't know just what Tourette syndrome is. And then you had this rare form of cancer. And I'm sure all of this totally affected your life. So tell us a little bit about both. Well, the Tourette syndrome, I mean, I don't know if I would say it's a, you know, people do what's called tics. They have, you might call them habits. They do movements in their body, like they shake their head or they clench their shoulders or, you know, you see people blinking, stuff like that. And the diagnosis is that plus they do vocal tics, like I make little noises in my throat. Uh, the one everybody knows about is what's known as coprolalia, where people can't help saying bad words, cursing or, you know, whatever words they shouldn't be saying. It just comes out. I went to a school with a guy that did that, and it shocked everybody until we understood yeah. what was happening. Right. You know, they did a great thing on that in Curb Your Enthusiasm. I don't know if you remember that. It was, there was a chef, and it was, a, it was a restaurant that Larry David owned, and he was doing it. So Larry started doing it, and finally everybody in the, in the yeah. restaurant okay, was doing it, swearing with the guy. But yeah, but most people don't have coprolalia. I think maybe 10% of the people with Tourette's syndrome. The definition of it's widened. Anyway... I had it since I was two years old, blinking and all kind of ticks, and oh, nobody knew what I had. Even though my father was a psychiatrist, when I was about sixteen or seventeen, he said, "You don't have that Tourette's thing. You don't, you don't do that swearing." You know, it was a very narrow definition, but it's it's more understood now. So when I was, uh, you know, and it was always a really hard thing for me because it it's about your energy. You know, it takes your energy up you have a lot of extra energy it goes into these ticks you know uh, maybe they're nobody really knows still exactly what's causing it but they call it a psychoneurological thing so it's mixing your psychology and your neurological you know it's neurological for sure does it come out at certain times more than others yeah i mean it could come out in positive times or negative times any kind of stress times uh, sometimes for me and a lot of people that have it it can come out during changes in the season interesting uh, so, you know, like in, some doctors will say oh yeah when april hits spring hits all my patients are worse you know but just it's it's a weird weird disease in that way so 
you know, I, I had this all my life. I'd never really been diagnosed until I was in my 30s. I went to a, a friend of mine's, uh, I was in New York and his sister-in-law had a, has a horse farm up in these sopas upstate. I went there and she said, hey, would you come with me to help me muck out the stables? And I went, all right, you know, and as we're walking, she said, I just want you to know that you have Tourette's syndrome. I said, what are you talking about? I don't have Tourette's syndrome. What is it? And she was a social worker. So she said, read this book by the great neurologist writer, Oliver Sacks. And he wrote a book called The Man Who Mistook My Wife for a Hat, right? And there was a chapter in there about a guy called Witty Tiki Ray, and he was a drummer. And he would take some medication in the week so he could go to a regular job, but he wouldn't take it in the weekend. And he had all these kind of tics. And I totally identified with that. I realized, God, that must be what I have. But I'd never been diagnosed. And so I was in my 30s. I still didn't get diagnosed. And then finally, I had Bill's palsy, you know, and I had to go to a neurologist. And, you know, he said, oh, yeah, it's Tourette's, but don't worry about it. Is there medication that you can take that will moderate the disease? Or I think there could be. I mean, I've never taken it. You know, uh, I think there's side effects. Some people, if it's really bad, yeah, there's stuff you can take. I don't really know what. Things that will calm you down or cool out the ticks. There's also some behavioral modification things that people find very effective, particularly children. I see. Uh, you know, where you kind of take that energy, you you feel the impulse to do a tick, and you turn it into maybe you squeeze your hand or, you know, something like that, or you squeeze your leg to kind of keep it. But it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a pain in the ass to have Tourette's syndrome. It's just very difficult. I can imagine. Did it ever affect you while you were playing? Well, I think when I was playing, a lot of people that have Tourette's, when they play or they act or they do something intense, their, their energy is more focused on something else. Oh, it doesn't really get in my way. But people have asked me, well, what does it feel like to be a, a pianist and you know a musician and have Tourette's? I go, I wouldn't know. I've never been another kind of pianist. So I don't know how it affects me. Right. I feel like I'm very intuitive and very impulsive. So that could be part of it. But I don't really find it affecting me in a bad way. Maybe when I stand up to talk to the audience, then I might tick more or something like that. But I can, uh, people with Tourette's can sometimes cool it out for a minute, but then it comes back strong, you know? So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a quirky sucker to have. And it was very embarrassing and shameful for me because I thought it meant something bad about myself or I should be able to control it. And, you know, anyway, what happened was my wife, I met my wife, Polly, on Polly Draper on our studio hall show. And she said right away, well, what's wrong with you? You know, no one's really asked me like that, but I knew it was Tourette's. And she wrote a movie called The Tick Code, T-I-C-C-O-D, with her starring her and Gregory Hines. And it's about a jazz piano kid uh, who was 12 years old, who had Tourette's and Gregory's character at Tourette's. Anyway, we got involved with the Tourette's Center Association. They said, you should be involved with this. I ended up being chairman of the board of that that association for quite a while that's pretty involved so i got super involved yeah and i learned a lot i got to meet all the great neurologists i became really good friends with oliver Sachs, which was really a treat and you know uh, it was a whole other world and i'll tell you one thing is when you're dealing with people in nonprofits and medical nonprofits, the difference is you know i'm a narcissist narcissistic musician like everybody else is a musician you know you're you gotta be about practicing and listening and doing your own thing and who do you like and being in tune with yourself. And then I found all these people on this board who did all this for free and they were all about other things. And it really opened up my mind in a lot of ways of life. You know, it was a good experience for me. 
Well, good for you that you've been able to live with this and uh, incorporate it within your life. That's all you can do, I guess, with something like this. Well, I was just going to say with Tourette's, for me, vodka was very helpful. At <laughs> night, I would take a shot or two of vodka. I mean, I don't do that anymore. But I don't think that's probably in the literature, but you f- you figured out your own answer. Well, you know, a lot of people smoke weed for it. Uh, oh. Some of those things do help some people. They've done lots of studies on that, you know. But anyway, so yeah, Tourette's is... Uh, it's, you know, some people have it way worse than I do. And it really, they sometimes get, there's a thing called DBS, deep brain stimulation, where they go in and they attach electrodes to the brain. And they do that for people with Parkinson's. And they found with people that have really, really intense Tourette's, it can be helpful. But, you know, that's it. They're like, some people are running around all the time and taking things apart and they just can't relax. And, you know, uh, it can be helpful. All right. Good for you. So tell us again about this cancer situation, because that's part of your book as well. Yeah, I didn't want to write about this cancer, but when I first wrote the book, I was really writing a how-to book on being a musician. So I wrote 100 pages of how to be a, you know, a sideman, how to be a leader, how to be a conductor, how to be t- on TV. And then I read these 100 pages and then like, you know, I don't know if you read Catcher in the Rye, but Holden Caulfield was taking a speech class. And if the, this, if the student giving the speech got off the subject, the teacher in the class would yell, digression, digression. And Holden said, I like the digressions better. And I realized when I read my 100 pages of how do, I like the stories. I like the digressions that I wrote better than the how to. So I decided to write this book, you know, and I wrote it and I, you know, I gave it to an agent. And he said, well, I really like this book. You're a great writer. And I like this and that. And I like, you know, about your wife and your kids, because my kids are movie stars now. And we talk all about that. But he said, you know, usually people that write a memoir have something they've overcome. I went, okay. And I had just had to go back and confront writing about this cancer, which I've been cured about four years, but it was I it's so bad. I wouldn't risk it on Trump. That's how bad my cancer was. That's how mm. painful it was. You know what I mean? And this came out of nowhere, I assume? Came out of nowhere. Uh, it was about eight years ago. I just was feeling fine, but I felt that I had some some swollen lymph nodes in my groin. And I went to my regular doctor. He goes, ah, oh, you're, you know, all, everything looks great. Oh, let's not worry about it. But it didn't go away. And finally, I went and got it checked out. And they said, yeah, you have a type of lymphoma. And it's, you know, it's not that bad. You know, it's treatable. But we won't actually treat you till you feel sick. It's not, you know, there's nothing you can do about it. And uh, then we'll treat it. And it won't be curable, but we can treat it. And then you'll need to be treated in three years or 10 years or something. So I got sick in the next year and then really sick. And then they started treating me and it just never went away. And so I went up to Sloan Kettering, Memorial Sloan Kettering, to the lymphoma guy. And he was looking at my chart and he goes, well, I don't see what you're complaining about. I was really sick, man. I mean, I was sick. I couldn't get out of bed. You know, I was bedridden and on tons of drugs, Percocet, prednisone, you know, millions of drugs. Then they found, did another biopsy and found out I had a totally different cancer called histiocytic sarcoma, which only 300 people had had on the books. There was no treatment. Oh, so they sent me to the rare cancer guy at Memorial Sloan Kettering, a really nice guy. And I said, hey, man, you know, I was just pitiful, you know, pitiful shape. Uh, uh, just 20 pounds lighter and, you know, just miserable. And I said to him, well, uh, you got to get me to the guy that's treated the most of these. He goes, I've treated the most of anybody. I said, well, how many patients have you had with it? He said, 10 in his whole career. And he, I didn't ask him what happened to him. 
And I said, am I going to survive? He goes, well, I'll fight with you. I went, this is not good. This is not good. You know, so I, uh, in the the meantime, when I'd gone there, they were doing a trial at that time of a genome blood test to check your genomes to see if they could find mutations in your blood that might relate to a cancer. So in the meantime, that guy, that guy, Dr. Gounder treated me with a really strong chemo. And I basically died one night. I got such a bad sepsis and pneumonia to that. And, you know, my blood, my, my blood pressure went away. It was a, it was a nightmare. I was in the ICU for three days and, wow. you know, I uh, wasn't expected to live, you know? And so, uh, uh, somehow I did got back home. I was bedridden. And then this doctor, I go to see him and he says, you won't believe it. But finally at the end of the whole blood thing, took six weeks for this genome blood test to come in. I found a thing that it might be the mutation. So, and this guy was a real researcher. He said, I think I found a pill that's used for another kind of cancer. Let's try it. I had nothing to lose, but it was expensive and it wasn't for my cancer. So it took a while for the insurance to prove it. I get, you know, after doing all this chemo and all this stuff, I get this little sugar pill. I mean, it's looked like a Skittle or something. <laughs> two milligrams. So I start it. I take it for two days. After two days, all my symptoms went away. I'd had night sweats, rigors, which are shivers every day. I'd been so sick. Uh, Symptoms went away. I went to him. He was tripped. He goes, let's do another test. Let's do a PET scan. And after 10 days, it was 80% reduction of the tumors. Unbelievable. So, uh, because it was stage four, it was in every place in my body, every, every organ, you know, every place. So then I, uh, I kept taking this medicine and I said to him, well, what's the research? He goes, you're the research, man. There's no research. We're going to, you're it. We're going to try a lot of different things. So he would try a big amount for like a week and then we'd get off it and then we'd stop it. And then we, you know, we tried all kinds of stuff. And at the end of about two years, he says, I, you know, and every time I take, it was testing me every month or two. He says, I haven't seen cancer in at least a year. And, and he said, I think we found the, the key to the lock of this cancer. I said, well, how will I know if I'm cured? He said, well, that's a tough decision. You'd have to decide to stop taking this medicine. And he said, but that's a big decision you're going to have to make. I said, no decision. Stop the medicine. Oh, so he said, look, if you make it a year, it doesn't come back. You're not in remission. You're cured. So it's been four years. It hasn't come back. It's a remarkable story, Michael. It really is. No, this guy saved my life. The, the fact that he figured out this pill that, that worked, I mean, it's like hitting the lottery. So good for you. You know, he wrote an article about my case in the New England Journal of Medicine. I asked if he could put a link to my album, but he wouldn't do it. Because of that, all of a sudden, uh, a, rec- a big uh, drug company came in and they made a drug uh, just specially for this. And now he's getting all kind of patients, you know, because people didn't really know what they had from all over the world. And I asked him, well, now... Whoa. What percentage of patients do you treat? Cure, he goes, 100%. Since your case, 100% of these people are cured. It's remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. All right. We have been speaking here with Michael Wolf, who has had quite a career both in jazz and he was the musical director of Arsenio Hall's show. And then he had some uh, medical issues that have plagued him for a long time with Tourette syndrome and then this form of cancer. But you've come through it all. And I want to thank you so much for being on this podcast. It's been unbelievable. And I want to wish you the best of luck. Well, thank you. I hope people go on Amazon.com and check out my 
my book on that note because I'm able to really talk about the great musicians that I, you know, I, Bill Bill Evans was a close friend of mine. Just so many Count Basie, you know, all the people that I really, I really loved, you know. Fantastic. All right, thank you all. We're going to listen now to that song that began the episode. It's my song called Cannonball. I want to thank you for listening, and we will see you all in the next episode. Take care now. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com. Thank you.